0: Thank mm-hmm. you. It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market. But the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook Imagine, you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the B.B. Theatre in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to the thesublimetheatre.org.
1: I am a maker, a builder,
0: a baker, although sometimes my messes are all that you'll
1: find. I'll tell a story, both true and allegorial. The process is precious, so it takes up all my time.
0: Hannah Cole is an Asheville artist who translates her everyday observations into what she makes in her studio. They started out as external observations. Now, partially inspired by the incursion of artificial intelligence, Hannah has turned her gaze inward in a new body of work.
1: I'm making copies of objects that exist in the world. And there's AI now that can, quote, make art. Now, I would argue that it's not actually art. But I'm doing a lot of labor, and I think that's a part of the conversation here. And you could say, what is the point? Why? You know, this already exists in the world. But what's happening with that translation? And then I think that brings a question in of what is representational art at all?
0: I'm Matt Pykin, and this is The Overlook, a podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. Hannah Cole and I talk today about what representation by human hands means in the era of artificial intelligence. We also talk about Hannah's turn to personal finance and building a career helping other creatives manage their money. Hannah Cole's show at Tracy Morgan Gallery is titled A Mirror, Not a Window. It opens November 3rd and runs through December 16th. I began our conversation by asking about the focus and evolution of her artwork.
1: I am always painting in highly detailed fashion, like things that are very much around you every day, like very mundane things, but that I think get overlooked because they're so ubiquitous that you just wouldn't notice them. In Brooklyn, I have been painting like kind of my walk to my studio every day, which was over manhole covers and subway grates and graffiti and sidewalk texture, stickers on building windows and things. Yeah. And so I just gathered my subject matter from stuff I literally would pass every day on my walk. This is my daily commute. It's on foot because I'm in New York City. And so that's what those paintings were. And when I moved to Asheville, the thing that just hit me so hard was how much green there is. Like, it was so lush. And it's not in a way that different from my life in New York. I still walk everywhere.
0: Yeah, but it's an entirely different walking terrain. The city is. is so different. The things you notice are different.
1: Absolutely. And I probably am more blind to things that are similar to New York. What stands out is what's different. And so I just noticed how much life there was, just like botanical life, just like weeds and sidewalks. And
0: Was that always the focus, even when you went to art school, mm-hmm. was that always the focus of your work, these sort of minute observations that you would then magnify and amplify out to people?
1: Very much. Yeah. Although the look of it has shifted pretty dramatically from one series to the next.
0: Yeah. What strikes me is a difference between what you were doing in New York and looking at weeds back in 2018. And to your current show, this is a very internal show that you're doing. It seems to be a very internal gaze. That's true. Yeah. What precipitated that?
1: What a good question. And I'm not sure I've really explicitly thought about that, but it's maybe COVID, maybe going through COVID, maybe being stuck inside and having to be a little more internal.
0: Let me ask you, before you dive into that, Yeah, did you find that when you were doing manhole covers, other external things that anybody could notice, Mm -hmm. and that maybe they did or didn't or paid attention to, was it important to you at all that your viewing public found a personal resonance in that work? Was that important to you?
1: Oh, it matters to me completely. And I might differ from other artists on this. I am into beauty. I'm into beauty very explicitly and also detail because I think there are entry points for a viewer. I have an argument, an intellectual internal argument I want to make about art in the world that it's for everyone. Everybody has a favorite song. Everybody has a favorite movie, but people are terrified to have a favorite painter or painting, right? They feel like art, someone has to open the door and explain it to them. They don't feel like they can feel with their own body, what is a good one? Or what's one that resonates with them? The difference
0: between popular music or any music that's out in the world and movies, other things that everybody is sharing, Mm -hmm. there's a sense of, oh, I can say I like this record or this music because other people like it. Mm -hmm. I think the way you're saying that some people think about paintings are the way people feel about the most esoteric music, that Nobody has this music except me. So I'm taking Mm -hmm. a risk by saying I like it. With paintings, unless they're reproductions or prints, Mm -hmm. they are one of a kind. The frame of reference for somebody to say this is my favorite, Mm -hmm. unless they own it, this is the favorite of my works, Mm -hmm. of the works that I have in my house— I think it would be very difficult for a lot of people to do. Oh, oh my favorite is Basquiat's blah, blah, blah. Or yeah. this, this Chuck Close giant por- self-portrait. Or Matthew Barney. Yeah, Name your artist. I, I just think <laughs> it's probably really difficult for most people because they just haven't been exposed enough to it. In You're right. Life. So beauty has always been important to you. Mm-hmm. You want people to connect with your work and be a populist on that level, which makes me very think, much. which is even more fascinating about your new work. Because in the images you showed me, again, I see it as very internal. It's books in your collection. It's in your house. Mm -hmm. And these are very specific books. Talk about the books that you have chosen to reproduce in very granular detail in sculpture.
1: I should point out the whole show is not books. There's other stuff too. But for the books, which are more than half of the show, I really have been thinking about AI, artificial intelligence, in, it's, just, it's just in the air right now. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's worrying about it. We're on the cusp of a technology breaking open unknown things in our culture. And I feel like that's right where I want to be as an artist, talking about opening those questions, what's going to happen?
0: <laughs> There's a lot of fear behind that question.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So for me, as a representational painter, and for people who aren't in art world terminology, representational painter just means I represent things. Like, I paint things that actually exist. So I'm painting pretty faithfully things that I see in front of you. Although I do just want to say, that doesn't mean it's always truthful. Right. (laughs) That's part of the fun. Yeah. So as a representational painter, I am trying to depict objects that exist in the world, It's easy to get pigeonholed into a sort of corny type of work, like cheeseball stuff that I'm not interested in. I'm definitely in the idea part of it. And I just wanted to investigate, with the books and the other work in the show, just what does it actually mean to be representing things? Like, for one thing, it appears to be totally faithful, but are they faithful? And there's some other works in the show where, if you're looking, you can explicitly see where things are lies. There's rulers that are, if you look at the dimensions of the painting, they're 14 inches and it says 12 Mm. and it looks perfect and it's to scale, but it's not true.
0: So what questions were you looking to address or were you having that then put you in the studio?
1: I just was thinking about the idea of being somebody who manually does that, who's making copies by hand right i'm making copies of objects that exist in the world like a book is a mass produced item right we were talking about mass production versus art which is not mass produced and there's ai now that can quote make art now i would argue that it's not actually art but
0: yeah, they can even mimic voices.
1: But I'm also, I'm doing labor. I'm doing a lot of labor, and I think that's a part of the conversation here.
0: And you're making it way more labor-intensive in some ways than, than what the original object was.
1: Absolutely. And you could look at that, and you could say, what is the point? You could say why, you know, this already exists in the world, but... What's happening with that translation? And then I think that brings a question in of what is representational art at all? Like, why are we ever reproducing an object? You can tell, your eye can tell that a human made this object. Even though it is as perfect as I am capable of making it, and with great pain and labor, (laughs) but it's still, there's no getting around that a human hand touched, and cared for this object.
0: Now, these aren't well-known books.
1: They're not. I picked them for the subjects. And so one of the things that I find interesting about translating, like, a book, if you think about what is the purpose of a book, it's to gain knowledge, it's to absorb an author's ideas. I'm tr- transforming them into an object that can't be read, right? It, it can't function as the original use is evaporated.
0: That's right. So it's a frustrating piece of art.
1: <laughs> yeah. But... I picked titles that really span. They're very thematic. So there's titles about art. There's titles, some that are quite funny. Like I found this book. That's it's called Art in the USA, and it it looks like it's claiming to have all of the canon of U.S. art, and it's just a tiny little it's like inch a- and a half thick. <laughs> really, <laughs> and it says only nine ninety five. <laughs> and I just the title of that piece is only nine ninety five. I just loved it. I think. Something I worried about a little bit, making a show that where a lot of it is about books and a lot of it is about ideas and a lot of it, there's definitely an intellectual component to it. One of the books is by a fancy French philosopher that I don't want people to feel intimidated by it. It's like an explicit project of mine that it feels welcoming and that people feel like you can come in and you can simply appreciate it on the level of, oh, wow. She took a lot of time to do that. How did she do that? <laughs> but I think a lot of us use shortcuts in the world. And one of the reasons that I love art and always will, and nothing will ever change this in me, is that it's a place to slow down. I am taking the opposite of shortcuts in this show, right? It yeah. is longhand. There's a lot of meaning in the title of the show. It's a, a mirror, not a window. And that I have a lot of faith in people. And I believe that people are intelligent And that some individual's quirky, weird idea, like you, person listening right now, like your quirky, weird idea that you have while you're standing in front of one of my pieces, that's the right answer. You have the right answer. And in fact, I made these books unreadable. You cannot open it and get the answer. You have to look at yourself. Not
0: without a buzzsaw. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's
0: right. What's really funny about that is you would want to open that book to mm-hmm. see what is in this. Yeah,
1: I tol- <laughs> and I totally did. I was like, who made the cut?
0: <laughs> Another thing you did getting away from the books, you have a painting that it, you have a frame and then you have the what you believe should be the painting on the main surface of it. But the painting is really on the edge of the frame. Yeah. R- explain that a little more and what you were going for there. What inspired that?
1: Yeah, that's an art idea, and I just wanted to see does this work. <laughs> and to be totally honest, dear listener, you can come and see them for yourself, and you can tell me if they work. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, and
0: so I actually have a I have a predisposition to appreciate artists who are going outside the bounds. Literally, there are some artists who. You'll take a painting, but they will go, they'll have a bulbous edge to it beyond the frame or mm-hmm. something will extend forward mm-hmm. sculpturally, you know, th- or the frame will have a chunk out of it and yeah. there'll be torn or damaged art on one side or the damaged canvas. I, I really appreciate that. And what you're doing, I don't know that I'd seen before where the actual artwork is on the frame. Yeah. Now, creating such a small... Framework, no pun intended, but a, a framework for you to create. These are like one inch wide by mm-hmm. whatever nine, ten inches long. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to paint on them before? Or was it just the act of creating art on the side of a frame that was more important to you than what the actual topic was?
1: Right? Oh, no, it was totally concept first. So I had the fully formed idea in my head and I executed it. You learn this very quickly when you study art, when you learn how to draw is that people make assumptions about what they're seeing. And if you have ever considered yourself not a good drawer, it's really only because you haven't practiced. That's really it. It's just a skill that anyone can obtain through their 10,000 hours. But what you realize the act of drawing is the act of humbling yourself to see what is actually there and not letting your idea of what is there get in the way Because what we see versus what we think we see are not the same thing. And our brains, it's part of their power. They abbreviate and shortcut things all the time. If you had to be conscious of all the things you did in a day, you would be exhausted. And I know this because my mom is a doctor in a rehab hospital, or used to be. And brain-injured patients would get exhausted because they had to relearn things that they could do automatically. So I've thought about that before, how we think we know what we're seeing, but we don't. And we make assumptions. And so I thought, what if I explicitly showed the viewer that this thing is painted on some weird material and then make a painting of the material they would expect it to be on so that I'm deceiving them, right? I'm painting a trompe l'oeil thing, like a total fake of what they think is there, but I explicitly show them what is actually there, what happens in that viewer's brain. And I can tell you, I'm the artist, I don't know. You complete the work by looking at it. You tell me if it works, what do you experience? So these paintings, they're white on the front and they have holes in them where you can see that it's styrofoam underneath and the edges of them are painted like wood. Some are painted like plywood, some are painted like like a block of wood at, with wood grain. And so it's funny to me that I've had people in my studio. I'm excited to have people in a gallery where more people can come. But They're looking and your brain can see the actual material, but you have this assumption of what it is. And so my question is, can people really see what's there?
0: More after this. When you go to an Asheville City Soccer Club game, you're not just watching soccer. You're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues.
1: The South Slope Blues, they're amazing.
0: This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham.
1: The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City Soccer so great.
0: Longtime player, Laura Greb.
1: We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field. Every game, they've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles.
0: Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. One of the things you do that very few, if no other artists that I know of do early in your career or at some point in your career, you want to take control of your financial life mm-hmm. as an artist. Where were you in your art career when you thought, I need to really get a handle on in knowledge on mm-hmm. what's happening with my money and how to work with my with money here? What where were you in your art career? And when was this?
1: I've had different eye-opening experiences that all hammered in the same message. So I wouldn't say one point, but definitely from the earliest days, I had an expectation that I would never make much money as an artist, which has borne out pretty accurately. <laughs>
0: but, but you had that, but, um, but yet you pursued that career. You went absolutely. into this knowing and you, yes. went, and you went to art school and you knew I'm not going to make money at this. Why did you do that? Knowing that.
1: I just thought, well, at the time, I'm no longer in my 20s. At the time, I was young. And I thought, if I can't do what I dream of doing in my 20s, then what's life for? That was what I thought. So I thought, this might not work. I I know that. And I just thought, like, I can't be half in, half out. I thought, I will give this my everything. And I will see how it goes. I will try to reach for the stars. And if it works, I will be living the life I want to live that the thing that I've always wanted to do since I could hold a crayon. And, and if it doesn't work, I at least can then say, well, I tried, I gave it everything I had and it didn't work. <laughs> so, you know, actually life gets more nuanced and complicated as you grow older, have children, all those things, the pressures come on you. And the fact is, I've never really made much money. I've won big awards, and I've had moments where I had great money from art, but never enough to feel stable.
0: Yeah, grants are a one-time thing. I mean, you can win more than one grant, but they don't always renew, and you can't count on that.
1: Exactly, and it's a very insecure existence. So I guess there was a stage where I just decided, if if I know I'm not going to make money, much money— I'm going to live as frugally as I possibly can. So that that was always my goal. Is I'm going to live as frugally as I possibly can and knowing that occasionally I will get a big chunk of money, whether it's a grant or a bunch of painting sales, I want to be as smart as I possibly can when I get those chunks of money so that I do I pay taxes correctly, I take advantage of tax rules to the best of my ability and I maximize the amount that I can save out of this. And so I learned how to invest. I, like, I read a personal finance book. (laughs) Like, you know, opened an IRA. I just, you know, these are basic items, but I just made a couple rules of thumb for myself every year, maxing out my IRA, things like that.
0: And so it was really step-by-step for yourself. Very much. That you did this. When did you start to think, hey, I can turn this into a business?
1: Yeah, when I had a baby... And picture this, I was living in the most expensive city in the US (laughs) and had a baby and had an income, meager, meager, squeaking by income. And that was fine to me as a person who only was responsible for myself. I'm married, but living on beans, giving up alcohol, these are things that are okay for me to do to myself. But denying things from my child, that didn't feel right. So that was the moment where I was like, I think I need to put some stability into this picture. I need to have something because I just felt like I could win the MacArthur Genius Award next year. And <laughs> if you
0: went to MacArthur, you wouldn't have to worry about the money for a long time. <laughs>
1: Five years. I know because I have clients who have it. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly oh, you do? what it is. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. Were you just talking to other people about what you were doing and they were like, hey, teach me how to do that? Or was it more of a concerted effort on your part to create structured courses?
1: Yeah, I was definitely not talking to friends much about money, except that all my friends were in the same boat, um, because most of my community is artists and creative people. But I think what happened is I had horrifying experiences with accountants, like I just felt so belittled and misunderstood. Like I sat down with my dad's accountant and he just treated me like some kind of amateur. And I was like, I have solo shows in New York City. I've won a $15,000 grant last year. Like, I'm not an amateur. But It
0: was condescending. He was
1: so condescending. Yeah. I think, frankly, and I know this better now with perspective, I think he was threatened. And I think accountants can be threatened by people like artists who are living by an extremely different calculus, life calculus. We're valuing our happiness and feeding our soul. And explicitly sometimes saying, I know this means I won't make the money I could.
0: So as you got a handle on your own money and you developed a business around sunlight tax, your Mm -hmm. tax business, and you offer a money boot camp and you offer a lot of free resources, how did that change your art? Once you got a handle on your money Mm -hmm. and you start earning money consistently through your financial advising How did that or did that change how you came into the studio? Did it free you? The stereotype would be, oh, you're now unencumbered from having to earn money through your art. If you do, bonus, but hey, now I can really make what I want. Or what was it like for you?
1: Yeah. It was a lot of things. And I learned some things that people who have, quote, regular jobs probably already knew or maybe don't see anymore because you take it for granted. (laughs) I learned that having some stability of income is uh, very reassuring. (laughs) It felt great to have a little bit of an ability to plan, which I literally had never had before. So I became a licensed tax professional. I went back to school for accounting. And I thought, I'm going to do taxes for my friends, I'm going to do taxes for creative people who feel as aggrieved as I do sitting with accountants and that's where I started and I did not realize how fulfilling it would be. I thought I was making a compromise to be completely honest. I thought I'll serve the people that I love and whose work I want to propel in the world and that's what's going to make this feel not just like a slog but I never thought oh, I'm going to do taxes, and that's going to be a blast. <laughs> that was not what I knew explicitly. Like I'm going to do something very hard that people explicitly will not try to bargain me down on. What like they do with my art, and but oh, that's
0: an interesting thing yeah. that you can have set prices. You can say this is how much this costs in the financial world. This mm-hmm. is what this costs. Art, people think they can bargain down. That yes. that's a suggested. Price that that automatically artists are asking for way more than they expect to get, and we can bargain that, that down. That that seems to be a common refrain I hear. Yes,
1: that I really dislike.
0: Once you not only gave yourself stability, but were having a regular income stream through your financial businesses, mm-hmm. what did that do back for you in the studio? Did your art change when you didn't have to worry about is this going to sell?
1: Yeah, it really did. I had gotten angry at my art career. I had felt a little like it had disappointed me that I had done all the right things. I had gotten all these awards. I had really like done stuff that's prestigious, but prestige, as any artist will tell you, does not pay your mortgage. And the art world is very happy to trade prestige in lieu of payment, which is just like almost an insult.
0: That happens even at some bigger levels. But the story I did a few years ago when the Asheville Art Museum reopened and they had 50 artists from this region.
1: I reached out to you over that. Do you remember my rageful email that I sent to you?
0: No, I don't. What, what, what,
1: and that's, what, that's how we connected. It,
0: it, but you said you had some kind of epiphany even within your own art practice, though, in terms of a freedom of, of some kind.
1: I absolutely did, because I released my art career from having to pay me. <laughs> And so I do still make money. It is still like...
0: Yeah, these works at Tracy Morgan Gallery are for sale. For sure. And <laughs> right. please buy them all. <laughs> right.
1: But think about the risk involved, right? Like I have worked for many months on this show to make this work that I will put up in a gallery. And I'm just using myself and this as an example of what other artists do, right? And I put out every expense. I'm renting my studio. I buy the materials. I put in all the labor. The time is really my largest expense. There's nothing deductible about that. Um, I say as the tax expert, and and then I will put it in the show, having outlaid all the money up front on my end. I put it in the show, and I cross my fingers, and I just hope that someone will buy one piece, two piece, ideally all 20 pieces in the show. I do have a profit motive explicitly and I can prove it and I can prove it with documentation, but I might not have a profit because I'm putting the work into the gallery and I'm crossing my fingers. God, I hope some collector will buy this.
0: I know you spent so much time working on this body of work. What's next for you artistically?
1: Oh, wow. I feel like this particular body of work is not done being explored and to be honest oh my gosh we're at the tip we're at the tip of the spear on what's happening with AI and so just that like thinking about like copies reproductions the human hand why spend your time making these useless objects (laughs) People know that it's going to be taking jobs away at all
0: levels of creativity that from design to writing to voicing.
1: But it will add them too. That's the thing we don't know. When books were invented, people were outraged. Like we will not tell stories over the fire anymore. All these, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which were an oral tradition, no one will have the Iliad memorized anymore to recite And you know what? They were right. We don't do that anymore. But I don't think that we're talking about how our oral tradition is so tragically disappeared. We're thinking of the richness of books.
0: Yeah. How is this? How is AI going to add jobs?
1: (laughs) That's the part that's hard to know. And it's it's terrifying.
0: The apex of all this of the decline of civilization will be when AI bots buy AI driven art. When uh, AI derived (laughs) art, I meant. So, Uh, yeah, that'll be.
1: (laughs) Whoa. And then create a derivatives market based on shares of that art. Yes,
0: (laughs) we're gone at that point. (laughs) First Look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com newsletter. I want to thank my guest today, artist and financial advisor, Hannah Cole. Our conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. The owners, Susan and Giles Collard, have been so gracious enough to allow me to record my interviews there. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band, The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on any social media channel at AVL Overlook and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook with Matt Pykin. Hey everyone, Matt Pykin here from The Overlook and I'll get back to my conversation in just a moment, but I'm asking you, the listener, yes, you listening this very moment, Is the Overlook making a difference in your connection to Asheville? Do you know more about what makes this city tick and where we're struggling? If you had to give up one cup of coffee every month to do your part to keep this show going, would you step up? If you answered yes to any of that, and I really hope you did, please join dozens of other listeners by supporting the Overlook with Matt Pykin through my Patreon campaign by giving just $5 a month. Give it higher levels and you'll earn free tickets to my live podcasting events your support means the world to me and helps keep this show free for anyone to hear go to patreon.com slash the overlook podcast